Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, just lift up your hand. We'll get one over to you right now. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to start at verse 31, and then we're going to uh, spill over a little bit into chapter 5, verse 2. So Ephesians 4, 31 through 5, 2. Word of God says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Father, your word is like a two-edged sword. And Father, I pray this morning that as the word of God is proclaimed and goes forth, that it would cut us going in and would heal us going out. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. We've um, been in this passage in Ephesians um, chapter 4 for a few weeks now. And as we've already mentioned, um, that Paul has taken us from really high theology in the first three chapters of Ephesians... And now we're getting into nitty-gritty application. What do we do with that, that high theology? And the, the image that Paul has given us over the past couple of weeks has been this image of putting off something old and, and putting on something new. So um, the last two sermons have been entitled Dress Differently, Part 1 and Part 2. And really this week's could be Part 3 and next week's could be Part 4. But for the sake of trying to interject a little bit of creativity, I named today's The Imitation of Love. But I'm going to bring out my props again that I used the last two weeks, which is the suit of clothes and the old dirty rags and put them back on the stage again just so we have that visual here of what Paul is talking about as he takes us through this text and as he takes us through these things that should be changing in our lives if we truly are believers. Now, with that image in our mind of clothing... Um, what, when, you, when you pick up a catalog, um, I don't know, from Kohl's or some other clothing place, and what do you notice about the people in that catalog? They are what? They're attractive, right? They're, there's men and women and, and children in there. Here's some, uh, some young boys that are modeling some clothes. They're, they're attractive. They model these clothes. And, and the advertisers are doing that intentionally. They want you to buy the clothes. The clothes look a whole lot better when they're on somebody and preferably somebody attractive. If they, they could just lay the clothes out on the floor and take a picture and show you, okay, this is all the different pairs of clothing that we're selling here, you know, but you probably, people probably wouldn't go into the store and, and purchase the clothes as often. But when they see it on somebody, especially an attractive young man, and, oh yeah, well, I... I want those. The clothes become more attractive. And so Paul has been using this image of clothing taking off and putting on. And today, in verse 1 of chapter 5, he talks about a model. We are to imitate God. 
In other words, these clothing that he's been telling us to put off is the opposite of who God is. And the clothing that he's telling us to put on is God's character, what God is like. And we are therefore to be imitators of God. And we are to love him so much and to to love his nature and to love his character so much that he becomes so attractive to us. And the clothings that Paul is telling us to put on are so attractive to us that we can't help but aim for that and fight for that and work towards that end. So that's what we have today in Uh, This text is a model, and God is that model. So I've entitled today's today's, um, message, The Imitation of Love. We're we're going to backtrack a little bit. We're going to go back. We we looked at Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 last week, just a little bit. It was at the very end of last week's message. If you'll remember, there were five things I told you to, to, that that Paul tells us, not me. Paul tells us to, to put off, and five things he tells us to to put on, and that last one was these verses 31 and 32 of Ephesians 4, but we didn't have a whole lot of time to hang out there. I knew we weren't going to have a whole lot of time to hang out there, so we're, going, we're backtracking a little bit, and we're going, to, we're going to talk about those two verses because in reality they're connected with the first two verses of chapter 5. You know, your chapter divisions, um, sometimes they're good because they help us see a new train of thought or a new topic that the author is, is, is giving us. But sometimes those chapter divisions can be deceiving as well. And we think there's some break in thought when there's really not. And this is the case with this passage here. Really, Paul's just going on. His thought is continuing here. And he's talking about verse 31 and 32. He's also talking about that same subject in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Now, for the sake of recap, let me give us what we, what we looked at last week as far as putting off and putting on. You'll remember that we were put off, to put off the filthy rags of dishonesty and put on truthfulness. We were to put off the filthy rags of unrighteous rage and put on righteous indignation. We were to put off the filthy rags of deceitful gain and put on generosity enabling hard work. Fourthly, we were to put off the filthy rags of words, damaging words, and put on words that edify. And finally, we were to put off the filthy rags of devouring attitudes and put on brotherly love. So, with the first two verses of chapter 5, we're going to backtrack and look at this last one, number 5 here, in more detail today. Ephesians 1, 5 says... I mean, 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. We want to see what this clothing looks like. We want to look at God and desire this clothing more this morning. So first, let's look back at these verses 31 and 32. And let's dig into those a little bit before we get into talking more about verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Verse 31, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Bitterness. Bitterness is a sour attitude, a spirit, or speech, usually, but not always, usually due to something that's been done to us, that's something someone did to us, or something that's happened to us. And also, an embittered person, when you look at this word here, it means someone who is hardened. Someone who's unwilling to be reconciled, who is unforgiving, with a heart that is turned inward to pity himself or herself, making it impossible to truly love others. 
This is the opposite of sweetness and kindness. It harbors resentment. It holds on to it. It clings to it. It's the opposite of the 1 Corinthians 13 love that I've been talking about over and over again. If you can't tell that God's had me in that passage, then you haven't been listening to the sermons for the past few weeks. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. That word resentful is very much tied to bitterness. How does someone become bitter? Well, when we're unwilling to forgive. An unwillingness to forgive. When we have been sinned against, we can become bitter. Or when we think we've been sinned against. You know, we can perceive things that aren't really there. A misunderstanding, a misperception. Doesn't this happen all the time with an email? You get an email from someone, you go, oh my, I can't believe they talked to me that way. Because we read tone into the email that wasn't really there. We, we have a perception that's not reality. And instead of dealing with it and calling the person on the phone and say, hey, what did you mean by that email? What, what do we do? We harbor it. We cling to it. We, we store it away, pack it away, and it, and it turns into bitterness. So it can be something that someone's done to us, sinful. It can be perhaps something that um, is just a life circumstance that we're bitter about. You remember the story of, of Ruth. We went through it last summer um, in the Old Testament, that wonderful, wonderful book of Ruth. And you remember Naomi. And Naomi's voice, Naomi's, Naomi's name means pleasant. But after all this stuff began to happen to her, uh, her husband died. Her two sons died. She lost everything. And she became what? The Bible says she was bitter. Matter of fact, she came back home to Bethlehem and told them, don't call me Naomi anymore. I'm not pleasant or sweet anymore. Call me bitter. She changed her name to Mara. I'm bitter. She was bitter against God. If you remember... And when we talked through that, she had good theology in, in that she knew God was in control. God could have kept her husband from dying, her sons from dying. She ascribed sovereignty to God, but she was bitter about it. And she was angry about it. And so she was bitter. So circumstances in life can lead us to bitterness. Jealousy, coveting other people's stuff, coveting other people's lives can lead to bitterness. James 3.14 speaks of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts. So bitterness, just looking at someone else and seeing that they don't have the problems I have can lead us to bitterness. We can get bitter when another person isn't bitter. How come they're going through life and they've got the same struggles I have, but they're smiling all the time? I don't like that. We get bitter that other people aren't bitter. Or even in a relationship where two people aren't getting along and one, there's bitterness and one person deals with the bitterness, the other person deals with, doesn't deal with the bitterness, we're angry that the other person isn't still bitter. Well, I'm still bitter. How come they're not still bitter? Circumstances, jealousy, sins against us can lead to bitterness. Keep this in mind. Bitterness is not a personality trait that we must just simply overcome. It is a sin that we must repent of. Others, people's sins, circumstances do not make us bitter. So someone doesn't make you bitter. Someone doesn't make me bitter. We are bitter because we have a heart problem. We often blame bitterness on what we are going through or what's been done to us. But that's not the case. 
How come one person can be treated like trash and remain sweet and kind, and another person can go through these very similar circumstances and be bitter? Because it's not about what's being done to us, it's about what's in our heart. I heard an awesome illustration from uh, Amy Carmichael used to give about bitterness this week. She said, there's two, imagine there's two glasses of water. One's filled with clean, sweet water, and the other's filled with dirty, bitter water. If you come along and you bump the glasses, the sweet water, okay, out of the sweet glass of sweet water, what comes out? Sweet water. And out of the glass of bitter water, what comes out? Bitter water. It's not the bump that fills the glasses. It just exposes what's already in the glasses. That's what bitterness is like. If bitterness comes out, it's because it's already in here. Life is filled with bump after bump after bump after bump after bump. The question is, what's coming out after each one of those bumps? If it's bitterness, it's not because of the bump. If it's bitterness, it's because of the heart. It's what we're already filled with. Bitterness comes from a sinful heart. And that's what Amy Carmichael was trying to demonstrate with that wonderful illustration. We're going to get bumped. And bitterness, bitterness kills churches, bitterness kills relationships, bitterness kills families, bitterness is satanic to the core. Satan, I'm convinced, is a bitter being. He is a bitter, hateful, resentful being. And when we're bitter, hateful, and resentful, we image, imitate, imitate the one modeling these clothes, which is Satan. We've got two choices who we're going to imitate in this passage. And bitterness is an imitation of Satan. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. When bitterness springs up, it hurts a lot of people and it defiles a lot of people, it spreads. When that bitter water spills out of that cup, it affects everyone around. Now the rest of these things in this text here deal with the fruit of bitterness. Bitterness affects many things and it leads us to anger and wrath, for example. So Paul tells us to put off bitterness, but to put off wrath and anger. Now this may seem to us to be a bit of a contradiction from verse 26 of this chapter when Paul said, be angry and do not sin. But we got to remember what we talked about when we looked at that passage, that, that we are to understand this as a type of anger that's a deep-seated, determined, settled conviction. And it can be good or it can be bad, depending on the way we handle it. And we are to have, we are to have righteous indignation about sin and about issues in this world, about even sin that's been committed to us. But the question is, do we deal with it in the appropriate way to where it's righteous indignation that's dealt with and we turn it over to God because vengeance is mine, says the Lord? Or do we harbor it and hang on to it and it become bitterness in our own heart and it flows out with new and fresh anger? Wrath here, this word means passionate rage, a boiling over. The word anger, although it's the same word as used before in verse 26, because it's tied to this word wrath, it refers to a sinful, sullen, simmering hostility towards others. One is explosive, wrath. The other is festering and smoldering, but both 
are sinful, and both are to be put off. So don't think that Paul is contradicting himself here. The anger that we are told to have above in verse 26 is a controlled righteous indignation. The anger at unrighteousness is an anger that turns things over to God and trusts him to take care of things. Care of things, but the th- anger here, the wrath and anger mentioned here, is an out of control, hate driven, and ungodly anger. And these things flow out of bitterness. As happens a lot of times, what hap- should happen every single Sunday is that God takes the, 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 the word, that two edged sword that Deemer spoke of this morning, that, that penetrates us, and He does it in my heart first during the week. So that I can then bring it to you. And hopefully, as Deemer said, I love that image of it healing as it comes back out. Because I've been struggling with bitterness lately. And I've been struggling with anger. Anger doesn't come from nowhere. You know, if I, if I get short with my kids or I get mad and I hit things and I'm angry on the road or I'm angry during the day. It's not just coming from nowhere. It's coming from somewhere. And my desire is to let God take his sword and just jab it right in and find that cancerous bitterness and deal with it. It's coming from somewhere. Something is stirring up that anger. And if we're unwilling to be reconciled to others, if we harbor resentment, anger will bubble up. And so will clamor. Clamor refers to people who get excited and raise their voices in a quarrel and start shouting and screaming at each other. That's not to be us. Bitterness will also manifest itself as slander. Slander here means, literally, it's the word blaspheme. It means you're speaking abusively about others, uttering evil about others, especially behind their backs and defaming them or discrediting their character. Don't you see how this happens in the church? You wonder how gossip and things start. It starts with bitterness. It starts with someone not doing something the way we wanted it done, and we're bitter about it. Or someone said something to us or looked at us or did something to us that we're not happy about. Or the pastor isn't running the church the way we want it to be run. Or whatever it might be that we are holding on to and we're angry about and we don't like it. And it turns into anger and it eventually becomes slander as we begin to talk bad about one another in the church. And to kill each other with our words. And this last word here, malice, basically it's kind of a kind of wraps it all up. It's, it's kind of, it includes all of these things just mentioned. But literally it means wishing evil against people. Wishing them ill will. I just wish that they would, hope they get there someday. Notice here that Paul begins this verse with the word, he talks about all bitterness, dealing with all bitterness and dealing with all malice. So he starts and ends and puts the word all in there because there's no room in our wardrobe for any bitterness. He says deal with it all. There's no room for any bitterness in our wardrobe. It's not that we hold on to a little bit of it. I'll deal with this later. We are to deal with it all right now. If a doctor came to you and you had, you say you had cancer and you had a surgical operation and they said we're going to get the cancer out and they come and they, you're in the recovery room and he comes and says, hey man, we got some of it. We got some of it. Good news. All right. Go on with life. That would not make you feel good. I don't want the doctor to get some of the cancer. What I want to hear is, hey, buddy, we think we got it all. We couldn't find anything else in there. We think we got it all. That's what I want to hear from a doctor, and that's what we need to hear in our own hearts when we're dealing with bitterness. We're dealing with it all. We're letting God take his scalpel and deal with every bit of the bitterness in our heart. 
disgusting clothes. Now, I want us to focus on the brotherly love, which, if you remember, is that last point that I mentioned a minute ago, brotherly love. So the next points in your notes are going to be about this type of love. If you're saying, if you're sitting here this morning and say, good, thank you, finally, get to the love part. If, if you're sitting here this morning like me, you don't want to hear about bitterness, that means you're bitter. If I don't want to hear you talk to me about bitterness, Steve, that's enough. Then it may be a sign that you've got a bitterness problem. Don't talk to me about that. That's resentment. That's pushing back at what God wants to do in our heart this morning. Verse 32, be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The bitterness-killing love that we are called to put on is, first of all, kind and sensitive towards others. The bitterness-killing love that we are called to be putting on is first of all kind and sensitive towards others kindness is the exact opposite of bitterness okay because bitterness and its nasty offspring that we've just mentioned usually spring forth from um, a wrong that's been done to us that we feel has been unjust and 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 for which we're unwilling to forgive the offender it's for that reason that Jesus gives us verses like this in Luke chapter 6, verse, 20, verse 35. Love your enemies and do good. Love your enemies and act upon that. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God is kind to evil people. And we are to be imitators of God. Therefore, we are to act upon this. It's not just, oh, I'm just going to overlook this. We are to actually do something. We are to be kind to them. So when someone has offended you and hurt you and it's causing you bitterness, one of the ways to deal with it is say, you know what? I'm going to forgive them from my heart and I'm just going to be kind to them. I'm just going to begin to pour out kindness on this person who's made me, who I think has made me so bitter, when in reality it isn't the person that made us bitter. Remember, the bump doesn't make us bitter. It's something in our own hearts. It's funny. It's funny. We talk about imitating God. When you've done something to someone else, and you've offended them, and you've hurt them, what do you want? What do you want from them? You want them to show you mercy. You want them to hear you when you say, listen, I didn't mean it that way. I'm sorry, you misunderstood me. Or I'm sorry, I, I hurt you. I it wasn't my intent, but I was wrong. I was sinful. I'm sorry. That's what you want to hear from them. I mean, that's what you want them to hear from you. You want them to be willing to hear that. Please, please hear me. But what happens when someone hurts us? We want justice. We want mercy when we've hurt someone else. We want justice when, when someone has hurt us because we're sinners. Because we feel good when they get the justice. But boy, we sure don't want it. We want them to be patient with us love is patient love is kind that's what we want and that's what we should be giving god not only doesn't wipe his enemies off the face of the earth if, i mean there will be judgment there is justice and judgment coming god does judge sin but at the same time there's this thing called common grace and that 
the sinners and the evil people of this world are still out there breathing air that God has given them, enjoying nature that God has given them, eating food that God has given them. God is still pouring out his kindness upon wicked, evil people. Now they're storing up wrath for themselves unless they turn to Jesus Christ. But that's our calling. Our calling is just to pour out kindness on our enemies. We shouldn't be saying, well, you don't know what he or she did to me. Or you don't know the way that they've been living. Is that our justification for being kind? Is that, you know, they've reached some threshold? I'm only going to be kind. I can only be kind a certain amount because they're, they're this sort of way. I think the reason we justify ourselves in our bitterness is we're not willing, that we're not willing to be kind to people is that we don't understand how filthy we are. The reason we're unwilling to be kind to people is that we don't understand how filthy we are and how kind God has been to us. We need to see ourselves for who we are. Filthy sinners. We were walking through a store the other day, and I walked past a mirror, some department store, some, you know, I, I was with Heather, and we were just walking through, and we walked past a big mirror at the Mall of Georgia, and I looked a lot skinnier when I walked past that mirror. I was like, well, yeah, you know. I was like, boy, looking good. Because it's a skinny mirror to make you look good in their clothes. Department stores do that, believe it or not. They want you to look good. They want you to look like what I do with that little model thingy there. They want you to look like that in their mirror. And that's our problem, is that we think we look like that. We don't understand how filthy and disgusting we are, how sinful we are. And if we have this misperception that we are really a good person, much better than we think we are, then we're not going to be willing to be kind and forgiving. Instead, we're going to harbor resentment because we justify ourselves in that resentment. I'm okay feeling this way. They shouldn't have treated me that way. Well, you know what? You're not okay that way because God forgave you and you were a filthy, disgusting, rotten rebel. And he pulled you out of the mire with nothing you deserve. You didn't deserve a bit of it. He did it for you, and you are to imitate him. So stop the self-justifying self-righteousness that keeps you in a bitter place. Stop it. Stop it. Our, willing, our bitterness springs out of an unwillingness to ponder who we are and how much kindness God has shown us if we understand this, if we believe this, then we'll be cut to the bone and we'll be tender-hearted. I love this next phrase, tender-hearted. Do you know what it means? The image here is, is of like a bruise on your body. If you have a bruise on your body and you touch it, it's tender to the touch. That's the word here. That our hearts are to be like bruised hearts that are tender to the touch. Or when you tenderize meat, what do you do? You smack the living daylights out of it. And you get it tender. And that's the image here. Is that we have repented before God and we've recognized our sin. And we've let his word just hammer and hammer and hammer away at us. And we are so tender now because of the work that he's done on us. He has bruised our hearts with a good type of bruising. And we're so tender to him now that his word, as it touches us, we say yes. His spirit, as it touches us, we say yes. 
we, we follow God's will in showing love to others because our hearts have been tenderized by his tough love. His discipline, his Hebrews chapter 12 type discipline that tenderizes our hearts, it's designed with love in mind. Not only that we'll love him more, but that we'll love our brothers and our sisters more. We are to be tender-hearted, sensitive, be kind and sensitive towards others so that his word can penetrate us and we will act accordingly. When his spirit pricks our tender heart, we act. When his word pricks our tender heart, we act. The reason we don't act is because, remember one of the words described as far as the things we were supposed to be taking off? There was a word he used, Paul, it was called callous. Are our hearts calloused or are our hearts tender? And that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind. Tenderness is tied to humility. You show me a prideful person, or when I get prideful, and when we get prideful, we all get prideful. When we're prideful, we are not tenderhearted. Tenderheartedness is tied closely to humility. The proud man does not feel the touch of God and his bruising word. Instead, it insists on its own way. And when injured by others, it reacts in pride and becomes bitter. Why are we so mad about the way someone has treated us? Because we think we deserve better. Isn't that the case? The reason we're so angry when someone has mistreated us is because we have convinced ourselves in our mind, I deserve better than that. That is pride. We don't deserve anything. We deserve hell. And when we've convinced ourselves in our pride and our arrogance that we deserve better than that, we'll become a bitter, prideful person. Do we not know how kind God has been to us? If so, we can no longer persist in our bitterness that leads to destructive words and actions. Bitterness is a sinful vice to be replaced by a saintly virtue, namely godlike, Christ-exalting kindness and tender-heartedness. Paul knows this, and he knows that the bitterness mentioned before usually comes after we've been hurt. Therefore, God's cure for our bitterness isn't found in fixing the person who's hurt us, but in forgiving them. Have you ever tried to deal with bitterness this way? I'm going to fix the person who is making me bitter. That is not the cure for bitterness. That will lead to further, deeper bitterness and resentment. The cure for bitterness is to forgive them. You don't fix them, you forgive them. That's what Paul is calling us to do. But, but if you're like me, sometimes your forgiveness comes to strings attached. I'll forgive you so long as you Change. And you do what I want. And you follow my prescription. That's the type of that's the type of forgiving that's not forgiving at all. You're just trying to fix someone. So the second aspect of a of a love that we are called to put on is this. It's a forgiving and giving love. Forgiving and giving towards others. Verse 32: be kind to one another, tender hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiving one another. 
Okay, literally means dealing graciously with one another, but most certainly in this text here carries the idea of forgiving those who have hurt us. This is the key to bitterness. You know why so many of us are bitter? Is that we are emotional archaeologists. Put this in the kid, no- kid notes, by the way. What did, what did Pastor Steve mean when he talked about being an emotional archaeologist? What I mean is this. Is we may say we're over something, or we may not even say it. If someone hurts us, we may not even deal with it. And what do we do? We go and we bury it away somewhere in our heart. And then the next time that person hurts us, what do we do? We go back and we become emotional archaeologists. We go and we dig it back up. We're going to go on a dig. We're going to go on a search. And I'm going to bring back every hurtful word you've ever said to me. Every hurtful attitude you've ever had towards me. And I'm going to remind you of these things. I have them here. They're right here. I just dug them back. They were in my backyard here. Here they are. Let me remind you of what scum you are. Here they are. And that's how we act. That kills marriages. Is to, is to bring back, dig back up, this archaeological artifacts that should have been dealt with and been crushed and thrown away years ago. That's how we avoid bitterness. The reason the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 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 goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the reason those can't spring up in our heart is because the dirt's been occupied by things we've been burying. We've got a bunch of things buried back there. There's no room for the fruit to grow. Bitterness. It kills relationships. Paul says in Colossians 3, a passage that's parallel to this passage in Ephesians, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And in this text, Paul says that we are to forgive as God in Christ forgave us. Again, this is vital. It's only in knowing the degree to which we have been forgiven that we'll be able to forgive. As God in Christ forgave you. Psalm 103 says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Aren't you glad that Jesus is not an emotional archaeologist? I sure am. I'm glad that he has separated them by such a measure that they'll never ever touch each other. As far as the east is from the west. Keep going west, you'll never hit east. Keep going east. My point in the wrong directions, you'll never hit the other one. Because that's how God deals with sin, not us. But we are to be imitators of God. We are to love and we are to forgive just as God has forgiven us. So we are to do the same thing. We do not have the infinite capacity that God has. But you know what? Christ Jesus lives in our heart. And so we beg him, Lord, grant me the grace to put that sin as far as the east is from the west and never bring it up again about that person, about my spouse, about my child, about whoever. I'm not hitting that. I'm not burying that in my yard. That's gone. I'm done with it. Lord Jesus, grant me the grace to do that because I can't. But I want to put on these clothes. I want to be like you. 
What are we harboring? Does it even compare to our rebellion against the holy God? What is it that we're harboring? What has someone done to you? How has someone treated you? Does it even compare remotely to your rebellion against the holy God? Does it? If so, we need to have a different discussion at the end of this service. Because you don't understand how offensive your sin is to a holy God. One sin, one sin is infinitely offensive to a holy God and it is deserving of infinite wrath. So what has someone done to us that compares to that? Tell me. God doesn't just overlook sin. We were forgiven with a great sacrifice. Jesus died to provide forgiveness of sins. And we harbor resentment? Really? You look at the price God paid for that sin to be as far as the east is from the west, and we harbor resentment? Do we not grasp the gospel? Do we not grasp the cross? Do we not grasp the blood that was spilt to forgive us? Do we not grasp love? If we are unforgiving, resentment-harboring, bitter people, then we just don't get it. We don't get the cross. In many places in the New Testament, God ties our forgiveness in Christ to our need to forgive others. It is only in having been forgiven that we even have the ability to forgive. And it is only in understanding the mountain of our own sin for which we've been forgiven that we can understand the breadth and the depth and the width of the forgiveness that he is calling on us to demonstrate to others. You remember Peter coming up to um, Jesus? By, by, by the way, this is right after, this text I'm about to mention is right after the text about disciplining a brother in the church. I think that's intentional. Okay, so Peter comes up and says, um, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as Seven times? I mean, that was a pretty, pretty righteous stance to take. I'll, I'll forgive someone seven times. That's what, that's what the, the custom of the day called for. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. In other words, I'm giving you a, a big amount, something that's never going to be able to be reached. And he goes on to tell this story, and I want to read it. He said, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And he began to settle. As When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, I've seen varying figures on what that 10,000 talents is. Uh, the first figure I read was that that's a, a talent is one year's worth of wages. So he has 10,000 years worth of wages. Okay, R.C. Sproul boiled it down to $6 billion dollars. So he's more like the federal government, all right? Six billion dollars. That's how much he owes his master. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold. And his wife and his children and all that he had in payment to be made. It was absolutely just action that the master could take against this man. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of, the, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a denarius was about one day's worth of wages. 
So someone owed him about 100 days worth of wages, which isn't a petty amount. If someone owed me 100 days worth of my salary, I'd want to, hey, buddy, when can you pay that back? So that's what he goes out. He finds someone who owes him some money, but nothing compared to his debt. And uh, seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Look at the anger. Pay what you owe. Choked him. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused and went and, and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and you should not have had, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him up to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my, this is the, this is the most damning part of the story. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Folks, if that last verse doesn't scare you to death, it should. It should. A failure to forgive may be the sign of a much more serious problem. Namely, that we're not saved in the first place. To help stress the importance of us forgiving, look at some other startling words from Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount. The Lord's Prayer. Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. It doesn't say the verse, I think we like to think of it reverse. Lord, help us to forgive as you have forgiven us. No, it's saying that if you're wanting to have a close walk with God and ask him to be forgiving you in a First John type of way where we're constantly repenting of our sins, the Christian life is constant repentance, constant repentance. We saw that in the marriage conference video. Remember uh, Ted Tripp said that? It's a life of constant repentance. That's what the Christian life is. And if you want to live a life where you can come to the Lord and be forgiven of your sin and have a close walk with him, then you need to be a person that's willing to forgive. But if you're not, then you cannot expect that. Forgive us our debts. Here, let's read it again. Forgive our debts as we also... At, no, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In other words, Lord, we're asking you in this prayer, you forgive us to the degree that we have forgiven others. If we're harboring resentment, bitterness, anger, unforgiveness, no wonder our walk with the Lord stinks. Don't go get a new devotional book to help you with your walk. Don't go get a new translation of the Bible because you're hoping this will be the key. Deal with the bitterness. That's the problem. Deal with the unforgiveness. That's the problem. The Lord's only going to walk with you as close as you're willing to imitate Him. Be holy as I am holy is what God calls for all of us to be. Look back at this guy who, um, who was unwilling to forgive. I said earlier, the problem is we don't understand our forgiveness. We don't understand the debt that's been paid on our behalf. Look at this man. 
What does he say when the guy comes and says, hey, listen, you owe me $6 billion. What's his response? It's not this. It's not, Lord, there's no way I can pay that. Please forgive me. I'll serve you with my life, but there's no way I can pay that. What does he say? He says in verse 26, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. This man did not understand his debt. No wonder he couldn't go out and forgive someone. He didn't know his own debt. You cannot be a forgiving person if you don't contemplate, seriously contemplate and meditate upon the cross and the debt that has been paid. You can't. Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses... If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That, again, is an absolutely scary verse. An unforgiving person, bitter, resentful, harborer of hurts, cannot expect to be a forgiven person. The fruit of, a God, forgiving, of God forgiving us is that we will be forgiving people. And if we are unforgiving people, we do not bear witness to the fact, if it be true, that we have been forgiven. And we are not imaging our Father. Instead, we're imaging someone else. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We imitate God because we're His children. We imitate God because we're His children. If we're not imitating Him, the question is, are we His child? I cannot expect someone else's child to imitate my mannerisms. Noah and Olivia and Emma Kate, they'll imitate me, my good and my bad, which is, which is convicting in and of itself, but they will imitate me. I cannot go expect someone else's child, the Rosbury's children, to imitate me. You know, how come, you know, how come Ethan's not copying me? How come he's not doing my, how come he didn't like the things I like? How come, I can't lay that expectation on him because he's not my child. So I cannot lay the expectation of imitating God upon anyone in this room who has not been truly saved. Who has not been truly converted. The question is, if we say with our mouth, oh yeah, I'm saved. What are we doing? Are we imaging that? Or not? Are we living a life that demonstrates the glory of God in us? Jesus Christ at work in us. A child of Satan does not imitate God because he cannot. Satan is a bitter accuser and liar who breeds quarrels and deception. Only the one in whom the Spirit resides, the one who has truly come to the cross, recognized and repented of his or her sins and their rebellion, only that person can imitate God. Only that person is a child. And if he or she is a child... He or she will imitate God and will be a forgiving person. He or she will also be a giving person. What do I mean by that? Well, I want to remind us again that God doesn't just overlook sin. He gave his son. He gave his son's life to deal with sin. So the love we are called to live is a sacrificial type of love. We are to give ourselves as Christ gave himself. This means that we pour ourselves out in love towards others, putting their needs above ours, setting aside our preferences, our desires, our hopes, our dreams, and dare say our lives for the sake of others. 
how much bitterness would be dealt with if we would just be willing to give ourselves away. Interesting parallel here. When it says he gave himself up, Christ loved us and gave himself up. And it's the same phrase from verse 19 of chapter 4. It says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. Paul's drawing a comparison here when he uses the exact same phrase in two different places in the same train of thought. He's drawing a comparison here. There are those who are callous and hard-hearted, not tender, who go after their own sensuality. It's all about me, 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 me. And there are those who give themselves up to serve others. God is not just a loving God. He's a, not just a forgiving God. He's a giving God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ came and gave it all. He took the form of a servant, being found in the likeness, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I heard an amazing quote from Donald uh, Gray Barnhouse this week as he talked about counseling couples and marital problems. He says, I hear this all the time, that a couple will come in and let's take the husband, for example. And he'll say, you know, I've done everything. I've given her this. I've given her this. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. He says, the question he'd always ask him, he says, yes, but have you, given the, have you given her yourself? Have you given up yourself? And that's my problem. That's your problem. That's all of our problems, is that we're selfish people. And we want to give to a certain degree but not everything. Am I willing to give up every one of my preferences, the way I want to see things done, the way I want to see things run, the way I want the world to work, the way I want this church to work? Am I willing to give it all up and just give myself away for the glory of Christ? That's the question. This is to be our walk. So what if someone has hurt us? Be kind to them. Remember your own forgiveness. Be tender and forgive them. And beyond that, be willing to serve them with all you have and all that you are. That's the forgiving and giving love. That's how we imitate God and image God to a lost and dying world. Everyone will either know, people will notice. If you think your bitterness is private, it's not. Everyone will notice you're either a bitter person or you're a sweet person. So you're either imaging one side of this whole equation or you're imaging the other. Which will it be this morning? What is God pleased with? He's pleased with people who image God him and that's our last point this morning the love that we're called to put on is a sweet and pleasing love to god it is sweet and pleasing it says verse two and walk in love as christ loved and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to god a fragrant offering and sacrifice to god it's referring here to christ's sacrifice but it's not disconnected from the context and therefore we when we imitate god when we walk as Jesus walked and give ourselves up as Jesus gave himself up with sacrificial love, we are ourselves being a living sacrifice to God that is a fragrant offering to him. God is pleased with the sweet aroma of someone willing to say, you know that person hurt me, but I'm just going to pour out kindness on them. Matter of fact, I'm going to give away myself to the best I can with the help of Christ 
to this person and love them. Ah, that's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. A fragrant offering. The Old Testament sacrifices were described as having a pleasing aroma. And therefore, that meant that they were accepted to God, acceptable to God. Christ's life and death was a pleasing sacrifice to God. This may be hard for us to understand. But Christ's sacrifice was infinitely, infinitely more pleasing than any of those Old Testament sacrifices to God. How could God be pleased with the sacrifice of His Son? Yes, the cross is a horror to our eyes, but to God, by crushing the Son, He poured out measureless love on those who did not deserve it, and at the same time, He poured out His wrath on the one who did not deserve it. And in doing so, He killed sin, and He killed death, and He brought, bought for Himself a people whom He loves. And the love of His Son is upon those people. And it's good. And it was God's will. It was pleasing. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him, is what Isaiah tells us. It was the will of the Lord. It was good. Christ's sacrifice was a pleasing, sweet sacrifice to God. And so too our lives, when they are marked by sacrificial, selfless love, self-giving love toward God and towards people, is a lovely smell. It's the type of love that Paul was shown by the Philippian church in Philippians 4. We read that he's talking about how he's been through trials and he's had plenty and he's gone without at times. But he says this in verse 18. I have received full payment and more and I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. In other words, the, the sac, this giving away of their own lives and their own possessions to help Paul out, was the type of love that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians. This should be our lifestyle, giving ourselves away and thus spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. So how are we going to conclude this morning? Let's take a smell test. What do we smell like? Let's do some self-examination, some hard work. Paul's not done, by the way. If you think, oh man... I can't get through this anymore. I've been hammered for three weeks. Paul's not done. Next week he's going to get pretty specific about some other sin in our life. So hang on. He's not done. We're to be doing some hard work, some self-examination. There's more that we need to take off and put on. But until then, let's not be bitter. Let's be kind and sensitive. Let's forgive. Let's not be emotional archaeologists. Let's give ourselves away that we might please God. Let us love as Christ loved. Let us be imitators of our Father. Let us look at Him and see His nature and His character and love it so much that we can't help but desire to put that clothing on. How do we change? We look at God. We look at Jesus. We look at Him. And we contemplate Him. And we contemplate His holiness. And we'll become like Isaiah. Woe is me. And then at the end of that we'll be saying, Here I am. Send me. Do whatever you want with me. Make me into that. How do you, make, how do you help children develop good moral standards in their life? You don't give them a list of morals. You show them God. Show them Jesus. Show them how lovely the clothes are that we're called to wear. In the name of Jesus. That's my call for myself. That's my call for you guys this morning. Let's close with prayer and a song. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would all be confessors of our bitterness. Lord, if we haven't already this morning, Lord, that as we go home, as we're by ourselves, that we would confess, first of all, to you any bitterness that we're harboring, any things that are buried in that backyard. And Lord, we are such sinners that we've probably forgotten about some of the things that we've got buried in that backyard. So we ask you, Lord, to take your metal detector of our heart, your word, and just comb our hearts and find anything else, Lord. Anything else that we've got buried away that needs to be dealt with. So first, Father, I pray that we would deal with these things with you. And then, Lord, my prayer for myself and for everyone else in here is that we would then go deal with it with our brothers, with the one that we've hurt or the one who's hurt us our children, our spouses, our neighbors, our family members, whoever it might be, that we just got something in our backyard buried with their name on it. That we would first confess that to you, let you destroy it, and then we'd go to that person and say, I'm sorry. So Lord, I pray that you just move in our heart. Have your way. Have your way with me. Crush me. Crush us. Do whatever you want with us, Lord, because we do not want to be harborers of bitterness. It will kill this church. It will absolutely kill this church and any other relationship that comes in contact with it. No root of bitterness, Lord. Let there be no root of bitterness at Harbin's. Let there be no root of bitterness in each one of our hearts. God, move in our hearts. Do whatever you want. Have your way with us. And only then can we actually be a light to this community. How dare we try to be a light to the community and invite people into our bitterness? No. Let's deal with our bitterness, and then we can go, we can see you do things through Harbin's that'll change the world. You got a lot of things you want to do here at Harbin's. You are the God of this universe. You are the God of this nation. You are the God of this state, and you're the God of this city. And you want to do whatever you want to do, and God, we just beg you, let us be a part of that. But Father, make us clean vessels. Make us clean vessels. We ask this in the name of Jesus. We pray now that you be with us in all that we do. In his name we pray. Amen. Please stand if you would.